Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today a figure well-known to First Things readers, Ryan Anderson. Uh, He is uh, well-known as a figure at the Heritage Foundation, where he is a research fellow. He is also a founder and editor of another magazine publication that people read, Public Discourse. He's the author of a few books, including When Harry Became Sally, <laughs> Responding to the Transgender Moment, and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. Today's topic is an essay uh, that just came out uh, the other day, and it is entitled Relig- Proxy Wars Over Religious Liberty. Uh, Ryan, thank you for joining us. Sure thing. Happy to be with you. Well, I, I think you make a very important point here uh, that our readers need to know, especially those interested in issues of the law and religious freedom, discrimination, and the the rise of the of the movements that have hemmed religious believers in in the public sphere and especially maybe in the commercial sphere as well. And uh, I will say that the essay is republished on your page at the Heritage website if people want to read the entire piece. And I wanted to begin by pointing something out. You have a very concise formulation at the beginning of the the tactics that we've seen in the last 10 years. And I'll read the sentences and then let you expound. Since the early Obama years, at least, progressives have sought with considerable success to advance the objectives of the sexual revolution through aggressive government mandates. It's a familiar story by now. Here, here, here's, the, here's the layout that you give. A movement that claims merely to want personal freedom, live and let live, first repeals laws that purportedly limited their freedom, then uses government to subsidize their preferred choices, then to mandate that other people subsidize them, and finally to punish anyone who disagrees with them. In other words, as you say, we we end up with the opposite of live and let live. Now, as you know, this has been extraordinarily successful in the last 10, 15 years. Are more and more traditionalists or libertarians even, uh, conservatives, waking up to this inevitable progress that we see? 
Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think you see this um, in all of the debates that are taking place right now about realignment, about kind of um, national conservatism, populism, um, post-liberalism. The reason that the right is having so many of those conversations isn't just on the economic side of things, right? So a lot of those conversations are also reconsidering um, how we think about markets, trade, international uh, relations. But there's also a lot of rethinking going on on some of these social issues uh, and some of the logic of liberalism um, in which it's not merely um, about procedures, but the procedures embody a certain substance, um, that, the, the, that, that the form has something to do with the content here. And I think people, uh, most recently, the example that I give in the you know, very next sentence of, of the essay was with abortion, that you know, the right to abortion becomes a right to government-funded abortion, then the right to have Hobby Lobby pay for abortion, and now the right to punish pharmacists who won't uh, dispense um, the morning after pill or doctors who refuse to participate in abortions. But I think the example that's captured people's attention uh, now, uh, more so than the abortion uh, example, would be what's gone on with the redefinition of marriage and then uh, uh, Jack Phillips the baker, where freedom to marry becomes the duty to bake the cake, bigot, um, or some of the transgender stuff. And, and obviously you've seen this with the entire debate that Sarab set off with his um, first his tweets and then his his essay at first things against David Frenchism. I'm not quite on either side of, of that debate. I have my disagreements both with David and with Sarab. But but I think you're exactly right to say a lot of people on the right are waking up to this dynamic and they're thinking through what do we do about it? How do we respond? And you actually relate. You, you find some elements of the the failure to wake up to how these things proceed in the how would you how would you put it in in general the overuse uh, the too broad an extension of a lot of debates over substantive moral and anthropological issues as simply a question of religious liberty this is really the, the thesis of the essay yes Yes. So, so there are two um, uh, motivations. And, you know, when I set, set, sat down to write this essay, you know, two things that were motivating me. And one of them you just hit on was that there's a temptation for a certain type of conservative to say, well, we lost the abortion battle. We lost the gay marriage battle. We're going to lose the transgender battle. So let's just pivot to religious liberty. Um, and, and you see this even in the Trump administration, um, where you know we're almost at the end of the first term here, and all they have really done on the HHS contraception mandate is expanded the exemptions, but they never got rid of the mandate in the first place. Right? Why are we mandating coverage of contraception, including four forms of contraceptives that can kill uh, newly fertilized children? Why is there a mandate on this at all? Why are we only fighting it as a religious liberty fight? Uh, you see this with the uh, people who discuss some of the transgender issues as if they're religious liberty issues. Um, but it's not a religious liberty issue that two males are winning, I think it's now 15 different championships in track and field in the state of Connecticut, right? I have no idea if the female athletes who have lost these competitions are religious believers or not. Um, but the unfairness going on there isn't primarily about religious liberty, right? Ryan, did you notice the judge's stipulation 
to the lawyers representing, I guess, three female athletes in Connecticut have filed a lawsuit of discrimination in that these these two biological uh, males, they, they, as you said, they've dominated some of these track and field events. And if you see the pictures of these people, you, you would understand why. But the Alliance for Defending Freedom is uh, prosecuting the case or litigating the case for the, the female athletes. And the judge in the case has stipulated that the ADF may not refer to these two males who think they're females who won the race. You may not refer to them as biological males in your argument. Did you did you see this this decision? Oh, oh, oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I work really closely with ADF. I think they are one of the best kind of um, uh, public interest law firms on the right, especially on so many of these uh, moral issues that a lot of other law firms don't want to touch. Um, and, and what I um, really admire about them is that they do both the religious liberty cases and the substantive issues. They litigated many of the marriage cases, defending accurate marriage laws that defined marriage accurately as a union of husband and wife. And they defend Jack Phillips' freedom not to have to help celebrate a same-sex wedding, right? And, and so in this case, they're trying to defend um, the right of these female athletes to compete against other females, right? The entire reason why we have separate competitions for boys and girls, for men and women, is that our bodily differences make a difference when it comes to athletic competition. Uh, and that's not a religious liberty uh, issue, primarily. There are other religious liberty issues that do intersect with some of the transgender um, uh, topic, but this isn't one of them. That the judge is gonna force the lawyer to speak um, falsehoods which is what this is, right? He's saying you have to call them transgender females. Well, no, they are males who identify as transgender. They identify as as girls. They identify as women, but they're certainly not transgender females. Right? It, it, that, that, that's utter, I, mean, I think the judge got even the gender theory wrong here, that male and female are the biological terms and then man and woman is the gender term, um, the distinction between sex and gender. If you wanna go down like the second wave feminism route, the judge, got it wrong there. But why are we forcing the lawyers to speak the other side's argument, right? It's the lawyers for the male athletes who believe that they are actually females. But the lawyers for the female athletes think that they are males. And the, the fact that the judge is uh, forcing ADF to speak the other side's perception of reality, actually, I, I think highlights something that Maggie Gallagher first uh, brought to my attention maybe a decade ago. And she said the power to define reality is what's really central in so many of these cases. Who gets to define the words that we use that therefore will be defining how we perceive, how we understand, how we come into contact with reality, that language mediates this stuff, which is why um, being able to say gay marriage, same-sex marriage, rather than civil union or partnership or something like that. The word mattered because it would be defining reality. And, and we can see the power to define reality in, in this case, in that if you make the ADF lawyers abandon that term, then you're, you're actually setting up the whole case on the basis of the other side's premises. That, that they can't even make an argument at that point. And I presume this is going to have a problem at the at the appellate level, I would think. 
Yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so I my intuition exact is exactly where yours is that you know the judge didn't do himself any favors for when this goes up um, uh, for review. But you're exactly right in saying if I'm the ADF attorney and I have to say uh, it violates fairness and equality for my female clients to have to compete against these other female uh, uh, runners, well then. That immediately undercuts the argument. The entire point is that it undermines equality and fairness for my female clients to have to compete against these male athletes. Right. That's the crux of the argument. Females competing against females, that's fine, right? That, that That's actually what fairness requires in this context. Females competing against males, that's why we have the NBA and the WNBA, right? We So anyway, I, I, I have no idea um, how the case is going to turn out. Um, but, but I don't see this as being a particularly smart move on the part of the judge. Yeah. Now, you, you say that people, many, many conservatives do not want to engage in these kinds of arguments on those substantive terms. They would want to defend, you know, J, you know, Jack Phillips. They will all, even people outside the courtrooms will wish to defend Jack Phillips, the, the Colorado baker on the basis of don't don't infringe upon his religious liberty. He has convictions and he should be able to to hold to those convictions. They will not talk about marriage. They will not talk about the nature of abortion, of contraception. Why? Well, what are they afraid of? Oh, of course. Um, so the observation there is exactly right, is that it's important that the lawyers make you know, whatever legal argument they need to make to persuade, you know, let's say they're, they're at the Supreme Court, five of the nine justices. Uh, and so I entirely understand why as a legal strategy, uh, the lawyers litigate these as free speech cases or religious uh, liberty cases, and, and they craft the rhetoric of their arguments to appeal to five uh, robed justices. And when Anthony Kennedy was still sitting on the court, right, that was the vote that they were going after, and they crafted everything there. But that's no reason why the rest of us, including religious leaders, um, have to be limiting our rhetoric and our arguments just to, you know, RIFRA style uh, uh, um, uh, arguments about compelling state interests, least restrictive mean possible. Why weren't there many people in the public square saying what Jack Phillips believes about marriage is true, right? Uh, the reason I titled um, the book right after Obergefell, Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Liberty, was to try to um, chart some territory in which we would fight on two tracks, right? Both the truth about marriage and religious liberty protections, but you're seeing many people just want to do the religious liberty protections. Your question was why? Uh, and I think here there is, um, some of it is um, respectability, right? To, to say that you don't support gay marriage is to be in the basket of deplorables. Uh, some of this, I think, is actually a very reasonable form of um, concern for your own professional future. I've made a vocational decision uh, uh, in which it's not even that I made the decision. I, I feel like I have responded to a vocational calling in which I have to be like very much outspoken on these issues, but that's not everyone's vocation. And you know, for a certain type of person who's trying to get tenure at a very liberal progressive institution, they might not have yeah. the freedom to speak the way that you know I can speak and the way you can now speak, right? I mean, like, could you get tenure today at Emory? Uh, saying all of the things that you now say, right? And chances are you couldn't. We know now, Ryan, that to get hired 
in academia these days, you have to craft and sign a so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. And right there, any social or religious conservative can't be honest <laughs> on that on that statement, or you will never be hired. So even getting in the door, uh, much less surviving once you get inside, that that is becoming harder and harder. Well, that is like, just to say that I understand why some of my friends who um, have future career prospects in their sites have to remain quiet. I don't get why the bishops or the leaders of large churches are remaining quiet, right? What is their next career opportunity? Their vocational calling is precisely to defend the truth on these issues. And if they're unwilling um, to be teaching in this way, um, then who's going to do it, right? I mean, and, and it's not just um, uh, kind of ordained clergy that should be doing this. There, there undoubtedly are many people with a vocation right now to be uh, defending the truth about the human person, anthropology, our embodiment as male and female about human sexuality, um, who for whatever reason are not answering that that calling. And and I think that's one of the things, one of the good things to my mind that's coming out of some of the realignment discussions is that you know we need an emphasis not just on the procedures but also on the substance of our of our uh, commitments you hold up the pro life movement as an exception to this process where they did focus on substance and this is one reason for the pro life movement's uh, longevity and and strength correct yep i mean cuz think about it this way we haven't just um, said you know, we have a right not to have to pay for abortion. We have a right not to have to perform abortion. We've said those things, and, and the Hyde Amendment protects taxpayer dollars from going to abortion. The Weldon Amendment protects doctors and nurses from having to perform abortions. But simultaneously, we've said it's also wrong to kill unborn babies for anyone, not just for religious liberty reasons, not just for conscience reasons, as a matter of, of, of capital T truth, capital J justice. And so we've been working to overturn Roe v. Wade. We've passed more pro-life laws at the state and local level in the past decade than in the previous 35 years combined. Um, and, and that ability to walk and chew gum at the same time both protects fears of freedom from abortion since we have a bad abortion law while also trying to overturn the bad abortion law and to enact good pro-life laws. That's what we need to learn from. And, and, and the second point I make there is that I think we've been more successful at the protections for freedom, the Hyde Amendment, the Weldon Amendment, precisely because we've articulated the substantive argument about why we believe what we believe on abortion. Um, that you're much more likely to um, have freedom not to kill an unborn baby if you can explain that you uh, believe that it is an unborn baby and that killing unborn babies uh, is wrong. You're going to be, have a much greater uh, uh, likelihood of protecting that freedom from complicity in abortion uh, than if you just say, well, it's my idiosyncratic personal belief. right? And so the same thing is going to be true on marriage. If, if you don't defend the substance of Jack Phillips's belief about marriage, you're not going to win in the long run his freedom to act on that belief. The left tends to go in the opposite direction. The left says, well, the hell with procedure. We we have a moral conviction here. They talk directly about substance. They do it in the wrong way, but they go right to the core issues, the core values. And one would think that given the successes of the left in the last, well, 50 years, 
that the right would, would wake up and, and realize a procedural argument up against a strong moral substantial argument, you're, you're going to lose. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right, that you have to you have to respond on both tracks. It, it can't just be about procedures, nor can it just be about um, uh, the substance. I mean, simply to say, because I think we, we don't want to abandon procedures here, because especially on issues where we currently do not enjoy kind of popular uh, support, some of those procedural protections um, may be very beneficial, but only if we use those to then do the harder long-term work of reforming those underlying substantive commitments. That the procedures alone aren't going to protect you if you keep losing issue after issue after issue on the substance. Um, the, the procedures can buy you a little time to then do the hard work of um, persuading and teaching the truth about whatever the issue is, whether it's about abortion, whether it's about marriage, whether it's about gender identity. Um, but how do we protect procedural freedoms for racists? And the answer is not very much, right? And the reason why is that no one thinks they deserve uh, various forms of, of liberties, right? So you don't have a, a First Amendment religious liberty right to uh, have a nonprofit tax status if you're a racist college. That's the Bob Jones University case. And that's going to be the future of uh, of institutions who believe um, what I believe about human sexuality, about ma men and women, husbands, wives, if we don't defend the truth of our beliefs about male and female and husband and wife. Uh, if we just argue on the procedural grounds without the substantive side of this, you can predict the outcome. You note that when Justice Kennedy was on the court, it made some sense to go a little soft on, on substance and go for free speech, religious liberty. How does the shift from Justice Kennedy to Justice Kavanaugh, do you have a reading on, on that perhaps allowing for a stronger substantive argument in legal matters? I think, I think we're going to find out um, uh, later this month or next month when the Title VII cases are announced. Um, and right now, all of the, the, the speculation focuses not on Kavanaugh, but on Gorsuch. Um, uh, the, the speculation is that um, it'll be a five to four ruling and that Gorsuch is the justice um, who's in play. Who knows if the speculation is correct or not, but I, I, but I think that will be uh, an, an indicator here. And, and just recently, Hadley Arcus has been writing about this in reference to some of the debates that um, Adrian Vermeule has um, uh, uh, introduced into or reintroduced. Hadley has been waging these debates before Adrian had been. And um, uh, I mean, this goes back to his exchanges with Judge Bork in the pages of First Things in like the 1990s. It's a long running debate. But what Hadley pointed out, I think it was earlier this week or last week, is that it's going to show some of the flaws of originalism if the uh, originalist methodology as applied in these Title VII cases reads transgenderism into the law. Uh, if originalism untethered from some grounding uh, um, principles, some grounding truths is, is the way Hadley would put it, um, beyond the text, right? Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think that's a case to watch. Um, but, but my personal perspective on this, I'm, I'm slightly different than where Hadley is, is that even from the purely just textualist kind of constructionalist, uh, originalist um, perspective, the word sex didn't mean gender identity, and it doesn't mean gender identity, that you don't need to go to the deeper philosophical truths 
um, to see this. And so that it would be a misplace of originalism if Gorsuch did this. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. You, you know, you have a section in the essay called Truth and Compromise. And you're talking here about how the churches are responding to the gender identity, gender theory move. And you write, so, for instance, presumably motivated above all by a desire to protect their institutions against coercive policies. These groups, these religious churches, religious groups have supported adding the phrase, quote, sexual orientation and gender identity, S-O-G-I to federal civil, law, civil rights law in return for certain religious liberty protections. They call this approach, quote, fairness for all. Now, my, my question, do they really believe these compromises will work, or at least will work for a very long time, or are, just, are they just stalling? Are they, are they just trying to hope they can get by the next year or, or two, and that some of the progressivist aggression will go away? It depends uh, who you're talking to. Um, I think some of them, um, they think this is the least bad practical option that they're facing. Uh, and so they, they would be fully aware of the unlikelihood of this to last um, uh, you know, into the future or long, but this will just be the best of the least bad options. I think other of them do think that this actually has legs that could um, stand the test of time. Um, so in my conversations with some of the uh, people promoting fairness for all, um, when you talk to them kind of sotto voce off the record, you get a variety of answers in terms of, is this um, just the least bad option or is this actually something that they think is going to be there for the long haul? Um, my criticism of it is that even apart from kind of like the prognostication uh, exercise, I just think it's a bad policy. <laughs> Right? The idea of imposing bad uh, law on the entire nation while exempting yourself from it under the banner of fairness for all, I just think that's a terrible witness for um, uh, religious institutions to be engaged in when we're supposed to be you know, acting for the common good, promoting uh, a, a truthful account of human dignity and human flourishing, that the vocational role of of uh, faith-based communities to be prophetic here uh, is being undermined when we're, we actually are going to say, well, if you believe we're created male and female and male and female are created for each other, under civil rights law, you're now violating civil rights, but we've exempted ourselves from those civil rights laws. Uh, I, I just think it, th that's my biggest objection to this, re you know, regardless of you know, whether it lasts five years or 50 years. I've got to think that much of the gender identity movement and the transgender identity in particular, especially when we look at cases like the athlete, that the, the old-fashioned types, the traditionalists, the conservatives, the religious people who believe in, in male-female and man-woman difference, they have public opinion squarely on their side. Maybe not elite opinion on their side, but public opinion they have on their side. Am I right about that or wrong? Oh, I, I think you're entirely right, and that there's a, a vacuum of political leadership to um, capitalize on that. Um, I think you do not need to be a like Bible-believing, conservative, first-thing subscriber to not want a high school boy in your daughter's bathroom or your daughter competing against high school boys. Right? You don't need to be 
um, at all a social conservative, religious person, whatever, to think that these uh, track competitions in Connecticut are utterly unfair. And yet we've seen a, a virtual um, uh, uh, evacuation of the playing field when it comes to political leaders who want to uh, speak to this issue. Um, uh, the, the Trump administration, in uh, you know the very first months of um, his administration, Secretary DeVos and Attorney General Sessions, they undid the Obama transgender guidance, and then I, since then, and, and, you know, they undid it, and then since then, we really haven't seen anything. Uh, uh, on these sorts of issues. And I, I think it's a missed opportunity just from a, the purely, if you're doing the like horse racing political thing, um, this is something that the, 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 the progressive activists are way out ahead of ordinary rank and file Americans, including LGB Americans. There's, there's a very interesting um, uh, splint, uh, splinter division within the LGBTQ community with LGB and T and many LGB individuals think that the T is not quite the same. Uh, and I've hosted events at Heritage where, you know, we've had, um, uh, uh, in one event, it was the first lesbian reinstated to the military after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted, speaking out against um, some of the transgender policies, especially as applied to children. Uh, one event, it was the Baltimore City uh, LGBT commission kicked one of the commissioners off because this commissioner said only women can be lesbians. And they said that was transphobic, right? And so, you know, I've been trying, it's utterly crazy, right? <laughs> Your laughter. I mean, but so we've been trying to um, form alliances with people who, you know, disagree with us about military policy, tax policy, trade policy, everything else. But But we see eye to eye on some of the gender identity issues. Uh, and, and I think a smart politician could uh, could lead on these issues, and, and we're not getting that really at any level of government. You have a nice, uh, concise formulation late in the essay where you say, today's debates about religious liberty are frequently debates about human sexuality, just reframed so the, quote, losers don't have to defend the truth of their convictions. The losers, I guess, in, in, in the debate, they feel like, OK, we're, we're, we're given our little space. We, we, we can hold our own and, in, in, you know, we're, we're a little we're a little hemmed in here, but we can still exist. Does doesn't this make them permanent losers? There, there's no way there's no way to expand this uh, to, to reclaim any space once the debates are framed just as religious liberty. Correct. Yep, which is why the pro-life movement um, avoided that mistake, right? I mean, and, and, and that's, if, if you think about the, the various um, topics discussed in the essay, the one issue that is still alive on the substance, uh, being abortion, is precisely because we didn't frame it just as religious liberty or conscience rights. Um, and so my, my, my caution here is to conservatives, don't go down the road of thinking about gender identity and transgender policies as primarily about religious liberty. We should be actually talking about the truth of the human person, human embodiment, the anthropology, our sexual identity as male and female. Um, and what this also means is this is where you actually see uh, the explanation for the hypocrisy of like the ACLU or something like this. When you say, wait, wait, why is it that these liberal groups will defend religious liberty on all these other contexts, but they won't defend it for the Little Sisters of the Poor or Hobby Lobby or Jack Phillips 
and just ask yourself, does the case deal with sex or not? And the, the cases that deal with sex, sexuality trumps religious liberty. And so the ACLU is is good on all sorts of, um, you know, kosher meals in prisons and um, uh, beards for Muslim inmates, things like this. And then they get very, very uh, bad when it comes to sex reassignment procedures, um, uh, same-sex adoption, um, Jack Phillips, the cake baker, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Okay. Ryan Anderson, thank you. Thank you for the update. We're going to have to have you on again in, in a few months, Ryan. This is great. Yeah, happy to do it. Yep. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930. Thank you.